Hello, and welcome to Beneath the Surface B-Sides, where we bring you full interviews with infrastructure experts. If you listened to the most recent episode of the podcast, you heard a brief snippet of my interview with Shruti Rajagopalan. She's a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center and leads the Indian Political Economy Research Program at Mercatus. In our conversation, we discuss not only the economic implications of India's population growth, but also she gives personal insights into India's history, sharing some of her experiences growing up in socialist India and witnessing its economic transformation firsthand. So here is my conversation with Shruti Rajagopalan, which has been lightly edited. So I'm going to have you first introduce yourself and your relevant uh, affiliations. I lead the India Policy Research at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. I'm an economist by training. Uh, I also direct the India Grants for the Emergent Ventures Grants Program, also at Mercatus. Uh, I'm a fellow at the Classical Liberal Institute at NYU Law School because in another life I did get a law degree and I work a lot in the field of law and economics. I host a podcast called The Ideas of India, uh, which is an attempt to bridge the gap between academic ideas and political economy, real world problems in India. And uh, my main area of research is writing about Indian political economy. More specifically, my training is in public choice economics, law and economics, constitutional economics. I'm a very classic George Mason University trained economist. So that's that's all my affiliations, I think. Wow. Is, is what I'll say. Wow. Um, <laughs> uh, Shruti, I want to start off with some context about India. So how big is India, both in size and population? And I'm curious, you know, for somebody who uh, doesn't have a, a sort of immediate picture of how large India is, how, how does it compare to the rest of the world? So I, I think it's something like 17% of the, of the world's population. Exactly. So India's population currently stands at 1.35 billion. I know that's sort of hard number to even imagine, right? The United States, for comparison, where we are recording this is about 330, 340 million people right? So the Indian population is 18% of the world. Having said that, India is a very young country, right? So the median age is about three to four years lower than most developing countries and much lower than, you know, sort of the developed Western world, which has an aging population. It's the second largest country, you know, in terms of population and barring natural disaster or existential risk, nuclear war, you know, asteroid hit, it's likely to, you know, be the most populous country in the world. It's the sixth largest economy just because the size, you know, is so large. You know, I I think nominal GDP is about 2.7 trillion US dollars, something like that. Having said that, uh, in terms of GDP per capita, it's still relatively a low to middle income country. It's about $2,000 GDP per capita. Just as a point of comparison, China is about 5x the GDP per capita of India. South Korea is about 15x, right? And the United States is about 30x. So, you know, in terms of being rich, uh, it's great to have a very large country, but it's even more important that it's a very large number of people who are also very, very prosperous. You know, that is extremely helpful. And I actually want to add one more question for context. So I was born in Nigeria. We've talked about this a little bit. And I saw a tweet forever ago, um, basically pointing out the futility of talking about a country like Nigeria as though it were one country. You know, there's something like 200 different ethnic groups within the country. And I wonder to, to what extent is this also true of India? 
Absolutely. I mean, I I think Nigeria and India are great examples of this kind of of diversity, but also how difficult it is to paint the country in in one color. So, just you know, as an example, Uttar Pradesh, which is the largest state in India, it's the size of Brazil. Uh, the smallest state in India, Sikkim, is closer to the side of size of Bhutan, which is like a really small, you know, Himalayan kingdom country, right? Uh, India's richest states, like Goa, which is a great place, like all the tourists love to go to Goa. It has a GDP per capita like closer to Jordan, right? And India's poorer state, Bihar, is like closer to Haiti. So that's basically the difference, right? And there are some southern states like Kerala, which have, you know, great on human indicators, 100% literacy rates, you know, again, Uttar Pradesh and Bihar, which are relatively poor, they're barely at the halfway mark. And in terms of linguistic diversity, there are 18 or 19 official languages, but there are technically, you know, thousands of dialects, right? Very similar to Nigeria in this sense. Uh, The caste system is another point of fragmentation, There's a lot of religious fragmentation. Of course, you know, Hindus are the majority in terms of population, about 83%. But it's about 13, 14% Muslims, right? It's one of the largest Islamic countries in terms of absolute numbers. I think it's the second largest. So in terms of religious diversity, caste diversity, ethnic diversity, it's really, really big. You know, uh, you'd love this. Uh, the, The Cambridge economist Joan Robinson She once said that the frustrating thing about India is whatever you can rightly say about India, the opposite is also true. And I think this is really true also of Nigeria in the sense, right? Like anything you can say about one tribe, you can get the exact opposite example in another end of the country, in a different state, in a different city. So I I think that point is very well taken, you know. So, So India, when we say it's just, I'm talking about a, you know, sort of geographical boundary and a state entity and a a certain kind of common culture, a democratic framework, like those are sort of things that hold Indians together. But you're right, uh, we got to get specific really quickly with countries like India. Well, now that we said that, we're going to zoom back out then. (laughs) For anybody who hasn't read How India Can Use Its Numbers, um, your excellent article, could you maybe summarize the argument and tell folks sort of the context in which it appeared? You know, I grew up in socialist India. And at that time, the economic rates of growth were relatively low, but population was growing really quickly because, you know, post-World War II, with all the advances in, you know, medicine and infectious diseases or battling infectious diseases, suddenly you saw, you know, infant mortality drop, you saw people living much longer lives. There's this huge boom in population. But if the size of the economic pie is not growing, it means, you know, you're basically redistributing the same size of the pie with more and more people. So in this context, it becomes very easy to have a Malthusian point of view, which is people are the problem, right? Wherever you look, you think in terms of zero-sum games, because that's how socialist economies operate. There isn't a positive sum-ness that comes from trade and openness. Uh, But also, you know, all the infrastructure is crumbling, right? There are too many people. Every time you need to get on a bus, you see that you got to sort of, you know, elbow 15 people to even get on a bus, right? Or, you know, school admissions, right? Every single basic public service that you use, whether it's roads congestion, whether it's, you know, water runs out the moment you go to the public well or the public tap. So these kinds of problems let people to blame population. And the government intervened in so many different ways. At one point, even policy call forced sterilizations during the undemocratic time of the emergency, but, you know, usually more benign ways of essentially reducing the population. And this has led to, I think, a basic misconception. We need to bring the focus back now that India has liberalized and now it's actually a trading economy. It's plugged into the global economy that 
more people are actually a good thing. So as Julian Simon said that, you know, people are the ultimate resource, right? And why do we think people are the ultimate resource? I think that's the insight which, which is a little bit harder for people who come from the Malthusian point of view. And this comes to why or where we think economic growth comes from. And it's not coming from just more physical resources. Economic growth comes from new ideas. You know, we kind of take for granted the idea that having a large population is beneficial. Um, you know, you and I are, are doing this interview in the United States. You're from India. I'm from Nigeria. So I'll ask you kind of directly, why is having a large population beneficial? This is a great question, and it's unintuitive to most people, right? Because most people just think, oh, there are more mouths to feed, right? Especially in socialist economies or developing countries. But economists and, you know, more and more economists who worked on growth theories, like, you know, whether it's Paul Romer or Michael Kramer, right? Their idea is that the, the central or the key to economic growth is new ideas, New ideas are more important than just some form of capital, physical capital or labor or something else, right? Once you recognize the power of ideas, the value of the population comes into focus. Well-educated people, healthy populations, smart, creative people in a space where they're constantly bumping into each other are the source of not just new ideas, but also how to combine these new ideas into more and more and more applications. And that is really where economic growth comes from. And this is not just true of today's like tech economy or Silicon Valley or something very specific, right? Michael Kramer has this great paper. It's called Population Growth and Technological Change from 1 Million BC to 1990. This is a generalized trend for all of human history. And you can even see this, like you go to small island countries, you know, for tourism or something like that. You've seen that these populations can tend to stagnate. They need outside people to come in and trade with them all the time. Otherwise, they do stagnate, right? Whereas large connected populations, you live in New York City, right? Uh, that's the greatest example of this. These kinds of places is where progress really quickens, right? Where ideas multiply. Matt Ridley has a great phrase. He says, where ideas can have sex, right? That's what we really need. So now, fortunately, India already has the resources of a large number of people. Now we need to make sure that these people are healthy, that they're educated, that they're prosperous, that they can actually go into the ideas part of the economy and bump into each other. Their ideas can have sex. And that can become the new engine of growth for like not just Indian prosperity, but global prosperity. Because, you know, in the future, one in five people joining the workforce globally is going to be Indian. Um, Shruti, in your article, you identified, I think it was three policy areas in which a large population could, if utilized well or if allowed to flourish, could really unlock other gains. What were those policy areas? I'll tell you a little bit about India before jumping into the policy prescription, because I think it's important to also specify the problem. So as I said, the people exist in India, right? And India, thankfully, is a democratic country with free movement. Uh, so that is a wonderful thing, like unlike China, right? That's the closest example of a country which has large numbers of people, but they're not allowed, you know, free movement, free assembly, and so on. But in India, there are a few really major problems. The first is that India's internal market is completely fragmented. 
One of the reasons the United States has been such a huge economic success is the United States was one of the first and largest free trade zones. You can trade anywhere within the United States. That never quite happened for India because states had a lot of different kind of taxation regimes. They used to have internal tariff regimes. You know, if you're shipping apples or banana chips from like one state to another state, you have to not only pay tariffs and taxes, but the differential tariffs and taxes come with a lot of corruption, long lines at highways where, you know, bureaucrats and corrupt inspectors can extract like lots of bribes from you. That was the sort of economy. And that naturally fragments the economy into smaller and smaller parts. And, you know, the greatest losers in this are obviously the poorest states because they're kind of getting cut out of the market. So the number one thing is how to make sure that India's internal market stays unified. So for this, the Indian government already took one step, which is unifying the tax regime from this sort of splintered many state system to a unified sort of value added tax. It's called the goods and services tax. But they did it the Indian way. It has eight different tax rates. It's very complex. It's a complete mess. So, you know, if they streamline that, that's going to be a huge improvement. India also needs far better infrastructure. And this is where the good news is. We know that if India unifies a single market, there's going to be so much more trade and therefore so much more revenue for the government that actually the additional infrastructure is just going to pay for itself. It's going to be, it's not like a net loss to build more roads, right? Or to build more ports or railways and transportation systems, you know, cold storage, warehousing. These are things that will pay for themselves. So that's, you know, one major part of it. The second is India's labor market is a complete disaster. And this is, again, goes back to the socialist history of there are just about, I think, 40 or 50 federal level labor laws and regulation. And every state has its own rules and own regulation, which means at any given point, if you're like a countrywide firm, you have to follow like two, three hundred different codes of regulation. And there's a labor inspection system, which is, of course, very corrupt and, you know, can completely extract rents. But what that does is it makes it very costly to hire people in a labor surplus economy, which is a terrible, terrible thing. And therefore, and you'll be familiar with this from the Nigerian experience, it gets pushed into the informal market. And what I mean by the informal market is that it's basically just escaping taxes and regulation. There's nothing poor quality of the informal market. You know, my engagement ring, I'm, I'm showing it to Tammy right now, comes from the informal market, right? So you can have very high quality, very, very expensive jewelry, leather goods, artwork, all this manufacturing happening in the shadow of India's regulation. And what that does is it doesn't allow it to scale. When things can't formalize, they can't get access to credit. And more importantly, in the labor market, people can't get gainfully employed in sensible jobs that are salaried. They're basically working like daily wage labor. So this really needs to get fixed. 80% of India works in the informal economy. So they need to be brought back, you know, in a way out of the shadows into the light. And the only way to do that is to deregulate in a meaningful way countrywide, so that, you know, it becomes very easy to hire labor and it becomes very easy for actually people to invest and develop their skills. And the third thing is, you know, India, for its state of development, got connected to the internet very, very quickly. This has, again, got something to do with its numbers. When you need to lay the pipes or to put down the infrastructure for internet or telecom connectivity, a very large size market helps, right? Because very large number of subscribers means that you can put in the capital expenditure required to lay the pipes. 
So in India, that happened really quickly. I believe 816 million people are connected to a mobile phone in India. So it has fantastic mobile phone penetration. Like, you know, I think three out of four households has at least one phone. So the household has access. And that means that, you know, and data is so cheap in India that I believe at one point someone was telling me, I met someone who used to work at HBO and they told me that Game of Thrones is like super popular in India, though it never launched by then. Everyone was watching it like on torrent or something because data and streaming is so cheap in India that HBO decided that, okay, this is a very large market. We need to simultaneously start releasing this in India because there's, there's this huge fan base and things like that. So I think because India got connected, a lot of the network goods, as we call them, you know, this is platforms, right? Especially, I mean, you work at Stripe, so you completely understand what I'm talking about. But, you know, even more basic, like, you know, Twitter, Facebook, any kind of platform good, Uber, all this has a massive market potentially in India. People should get used to how you and I speak because more and more stuff on Netflix is going to sound like you and me. Because that's where the eyeballs are going to come from in the future. So I think this is uh, an, an underappreciated insight. And for some things, you just need more eyeballs, right? For things like subscription services, for things like Twitter. For some things, you also need purchasing power. So as India gets richer, you know, then more people are also going to use Stripe Press, not just Stripe, right? As India gets more educated. So I think this is an insight that, that's really valuable. So these are three areas where, you know, massive amount of investment is going to help India in a meaningful way. I'm curious about the 1991 reforms in India and what effect they had on the Indian economy. Oh, this is a great question and my current passion project. So, you know, I should plug this because we run a project called the 1991 Project at the Mercator Center right now. It started last year in July on the 30th anniversary of the reforms and the website is the1991project.com. So basically, India was a socialist economy and was increasingly growing more and more socialist since, let's say, about World War II until 1990s. That meant that India was basically hugely impoverished, right? And the, there were years or decades when the rate of economic growth didn't even keep up with population growth. So there, there were years of negative GDP per capita growth. And this was obviously not sustainable. But in the late 80s and early 90s, what actually brought the country to crisis was a balance of payments problem. India simply did not have enough currency to afford its huge imports, especially, you know, its oil imports and energy imports. And it didn't export enough, right? It didn't have enough foreign exchange. So it was this kind of crazy economy where there are a lot of short-term debt and ballooning interest payments, which could basically topple the currency and therefore, you know, in a meaningful way, bring down macroeconomic stability. So something had to be done. And those years, you know, the IMF and World Bank used to have something called the Washington Consensus, and they would have this long list of prescriptions for countries who were going through this kind of macroeconomic crisis. We've known about this in the East Asian countries or Latin American countries. India had had similar talks and exchanges before with the World Bank and IMF when this didn't succeed. But in 1991, something very curious and interesting had happened. A lot of the people who were in the Indian government at that time had gone and seen the growth miracle in South Korea, in Taiwan, in Singapore. They had been to Western countries. They had worked at the World Bank and IMF as technocrats. They had studied in American universities. And they brought back this idea that, hang on, markets and trade are not such a terrible thing. So there was a major shift away from these, 
hard entrenched socialist values towards we need to open up trade so what india did in 1991 i'll give you the cliff notes version and those who are deeply interested can go to the website is it reduced import tariffs it devalued its currency in a meaningful way and when i say reduced import tariffs i mean some of the average rate of tariffs was i think 155% and the highest tariff rate was over 350% right so it started bringing those down in a sensible way so now people could actually import and this is again not so intuitive if you know if you can import better you can export cheaper because your inputs just become more efficient and higher quality and so on so india's entire chunk of trade as a part of gdp started increasing india started getting richer but on the other hand another major reform that happened was india had crazy kind of industrial licensing you know the kinds that you read in economic textbooks that are talking about the socialist calculation problem the indian planning commission would tell its industrialists or entrepreneurs how many bicycles they can produce how many vespas they can produce right how many like you know, how much paper can be produced or printed in in a given year so this input controlled economy where they were told what they can produce basically became like a shortages scarcity economy right long lines for everything overnight industrial licensing was completely eliminated in india by end of july 1991 except a few select industries where you know they controlled some some things this basically i mean now you say that oh you can produce as many bicycles as people are willing to buy and you can imagine the kind of gains that just unleashes right so these were some of the reforms that happened that brought india out of a very strictly controlled economy internally and externally and integrated it to the global market and i'm a huge beneficiary of it at the time i was you know 7 8 years old when the reforms happened and overnight i went from like choice between two chocolate brands which weren't even that good now they were like dozens of different kinds of chocolates i could eat right and you know michael jackson who my sister adored and i adored used to drink pepsi and now we could get a michael jackson cd right we could buy a cd player and we could get pepsi which is what he used to drink so my memory of liberalization is also very visceral even as a kid i knew that something major is happening and my life is so much better for having having liberalized of course i come from a very privileged upper middle class background but for poorer people it meant you know shortages and lines went away when they are standing in line for their rations now they're no longer getting you know terrible quality now they're actually getting good quality rations or they're getting you know better t-shirts to wear because they were imported from china or taiwan right i mean their their clothing will just got cheaper when when people are very poor that matters so at every level it brought this huge change in india and we're working on a year long project we're recording oral histories with technocrats we're trying to understand why these ideas changed we're trying to show the growth that it unleashed india went from an economy that was growing at like 3% or 4% to an economy that eventually started growing at 7 8% and for 25 years india grew sustained at about 6 to 7% on average per annum and it has lifted 270 million people out of poverty right that's the size of you know it's it's like creating a new prosperous country almost right that's an extraordinary achievement so i think you know the 1991 reforms after indian independence from colonial powers if there is one major thing that's happened in india to make everyone's life better globally and for indians it would probably be that moment i mean that's incredible and i 
encourage anybody listening to to go to the 1991 project and also to to keep following your work. Um, One thing we were talking about earlier is how the Indian government reacted to perceived overpopulation. Could you speak a little bit more to how the Indian government reacted to sort of perceived overpopulation? Absolutely. So, you know, it started in a benign way, right? It initially started with education programs. We need to tell people to have fewer kids and, you know, that sort of thing. And a lot of those educational programs were linked to women's health that, you know, having this is like a huge stress on women, right? This this kind of reproductive stress. Then there were campaigns that introduced, you know, uh, encouraged more people to adopt birth control or use condoms and things like that, right? So at that stage, and this is all pre-AIDS, right? So this is not, you know, use condoms for safer sex. This is use condoms to birth fewer children. So this was sort of what was going on. In the heyday of socialism under Mrs. Indira Gandhi, who was then prime minister, at one point, India suddenly moved from a democratic to an authoritarian regime for about 22 months. This was the famous episode of the Indian emergency. So India called a national level emergency and civil liberties were, you know, completely disrupted uh, or no longer guaranteed. And the government became very oppressive, right? The entire opposition of India was jailed. One of the major policy programs at that time, which her son initiated in her name, was forced sterilization. And they would just capture young men, you know, young military age men, you know, peak reproductive age rather. And they would take them away to these clinics and make them forcibly have this procedure. So it was just crazy for a little while, right? And it was obviously a hugely unpopular, uh, you know, move. It went away immediately after the emergency. India has never done anything that terrible since the late 70s, but it did happen. Now, I want to talk for a minute about some of the unintended consequences. So in a poor country, which has a relatively high birth rate or fertility rate, and this is mixed with very high sun preference, right? Culturally, countries like India and many countries in Africa too, including Nigeria, sun preference, I mean, this is not uniform, but there are parts of Nigeria, there are parts of India where sun preference is incredibly high. So not only should India have more people, it should have a lot more women, so this is one of the unintended consequences. I think this as a as a policy regime has now been it's it's gone completely out of vogue. It comes up some politicians will bring it up in Uttar Pradesh recently they said oh we need to limit to two children something like that. But this is no longer like a major war cry, you know, of the of the socialist era. And I think there has been a lot of learning from China's forced one-child policy and how now it has this aging demographic that can't quite carry, you know, the, the next generation can't quite carry the weight of this, this kind of a demographic, you know, skewed demographic that's going to age. I think that is a learning globally that, you know, you need to walk away from these kinds of very strict population control policies. And I think India has learned something from it. I just have two more questions because I know I've taken a lot of your time. To what extent does immigration matter for India, whether that's in migration or emigration? I think hugely. Indian diaspora does incredibly well abroad. And, and, you know, I mean, America is a great example of this. There's a fantastic book uh, by Devesh Kapoor and Sanjay Chakravarti. It's called The Other One Percent. And it's basically talking about how the Indian diaspora in the United States is one of the most high performing groups anywhere, you know, even within the States or anywhere in the world. Right. Uh, so in terms of out migration, Indians have done 
very very well abroad and uh they have assimilated very well in a lot of different cultures i think that really matters right that that there is a group of people who are entrepreneurial who are well educated and who are syncretic and who can assimilate in terms of in migration india's neighboring countries depending on which neighbor may or may not have porous borders right so with bangladesh it's a very porous borders in fact there are like millions of daily wage workers who cross the border work in india and go back now this is going to be lesser and lesser of a phenomena because i believe bangladesh's gdp per capita just overtook india's so as bangladesh gets richer we're not going to have an in migration issue with with you know sort of daily wage labor it might even be out it might be indians going crossing the border to go to bangladesh to look for work but a lot of the borders are sort of you know very very strict because it borders with china and there are conflict areas or it borders with pakistan which has been a very long running uh, you know conflict area so because of that you don't have like this kind of foot movement across borders but india for all practical purposes has a pretty open immigration regime it's just a question of you know who would wish to come and work in india and like naturally assimilate in that environment so it has to be someone you know who is it's very easy for someone who is you know english speaking you know relatively elite gets very easily plugged into the formal part of the economy it's quite easy to move to india and immediately find work and things like that and you know india has so many examples of people coming in as bbc reporters and just sort of staying back right because they they've assimilated almost too well on the other hand if you're looking to come from you know some of the poorer parts of asia or africa it can be difficult to integrate into a country if you don't know the lingua franca and india is so specific in terms of its caste and religious and linguistic relationships that it's not easy for you know outside groups to just immediately mingle on say a factory floor or you know just come and buy agricultural land and become a farmer or something like that so you know that kind of the very typical migration that you see from an even poorer country in india to come to india and you know start picking cotton or something like that you don't you don't see much of that happening in india and as a percentage of population it's a blip India has just got so many people that migration is not the route that changes numbers meaningfully. I appreciate so much that you took the time and I you know we're both optimists I think and I wonder to kind of close this conversation out what are to your mind the most potent reasons for optimism about India's future? Lots and lots of people right and lots and lots of people who are getting better and better in get integrated into the global economy you know and this is because of india's own regime of you know relatively free speech democratic systems and you know access to the internet so i should give you this example i recently uh, i like collecting a lot of indian art especially you know tribal art i bought a particular piece of art it's made on textile it's called mata ni pacheri i can send you the picture and uh, it's by wonderful artist called sanjay chitara i i hope i'm saying his name right uh, and he's from gujarat and it was you know i mean he he's basically you know vegetable dye on textile and it was sold on an online auction platform i bought it sitting in a washington dc suburb and the payments were processed by stripe 
And so this kind of integration has now made an artist who works on folk art in India so much richer because we have been able to connect with him and, you know, there's massive gains from trade. Those are the sorts of things that make me incredibly optimistic about India. I think what is preventing India from reaching its full potential is basically very poor regulation, bad government regulation. Government just needs to get out of the way and let Indians be entrepreneurial. And the second is just very poor health and education systems, which always, I, I think that really hampers people from reaching their full potential. How many wonderful artists and Einsteins and Mozarts and geniuses are hiding in India because they are not plugged into the global network, either because they couldn't access education or they are not healthy enough or they're not rich enough to afford a phone and an internet connection and so on, right? So I think those are the things, if India can manage to fix, I'm just very, very optimistic about its future, but most importantly, because of its numbers. Beneath the Surface is a production of Striped Press. The senior producers for the series are myself and Everett Katigbak. This episode was produced by Jack Rossiter Munley. Whitney Chen was our production manager. Our sound mixer and sound designer was Jim McKee. We had additional editing support from Emma Jackson. Original music for the series was composed by Oribus. Visit press.stripe.com to learn more about Stripe Press. All right, that's it for this B-side. I've been your host, Tamara Winter. This is Beneath the Surface. B-sides. <laughs>